Well, we have seen in the last four lessons that Job has lost so much. Uh, he has lost all of his possessions. His children have died. His body has now been afflicted with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. He's sitting in ashes, grieving, mourning while he scrapes the sores on his body with a broken piece of pottery. His three friends have come, and their purpose, as chapter 2 describes, is to give them comfort and sympathy. Uh, And yet, it says that Job's suffering was so great that they didn't even recognize him when they began to approach him. Uh, It's important just to have a sense of how bad it is for Job uh, before you get into the things that Job says. It is easy to be hypercritical of Job if you're just, you know, sitting here in air conditioning going, wow, Job says some really crazy stuff and you don't think about exactly where he's at and what he's gone through, how much he has lost and how much he has experienced at this point. When we get out to chapter 7, Job will indicate that it's been months that have transpired at this point. So this isn't like day 2 or day 7 or something like that. That he has been enduring this for months uh, and is in great pain. And so it is in his pain, it is in his shock and in his grief that now Job breaks the silence after seven days of his three friends sitting there and just mourning with him and sitting next to him, Job is now going to speak. As we read what he says, it is very important to understand what he is saying. And we're going to talk about from time to time some of the things that he says and to make sure that we understand what the problem is for Job and what he's exactly expressing. Not only that, don't forget, as you look in your text, you'll see that the way your typeset in your Bible has now changed. And so this is poetry. And so we're trying to read this like poetry, read this like the Psalms, where you are getting the flavor and the feel and the imagery of what Job is saying. From this point on in the book of Job, all the way to chapter 42 and verse 6, It's all poetry, and so we have to read it in that lens and understand that that's what's happening as he speaks. So let's look at what he says now. We'll start with the first ten verses of Job 3. Job 3 begins, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come to the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Those let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. First movement here, what we see. It says here that we have him cursing the day of his birth, and I think it's important to 
put into a proper framework what that means. Because when we talk about somebody cursing something, that typically means an anger-laced tirade of some kind of just unloading about something. And that's not the idea here. When you hear of God cursing something, that's not an anger-laced tirade by which he's just venting himself out all over the place. And I believe as we read through chapter 3, what Job says is not an anger-laced tirade at all either. Rather, what we are reading about is a painful lamentation. And it's important to observe that he's not the only one in scriptures who talks like this. In fact, this idea of cursing the day of your birth, we're going to see Jeremiah say the very same thing as we move through that study in, in, in our Sunday morning class. And so what you have in saying that cursing be on the birth, cursed be that day, is not this lashing out of anger toward God or toward his friends or anything like that. But as the context is showing, as we just read it, he's saying, I wish that day didn't exist. That day should have never come. That day is a dark, awful day. It is a cursed day. In fact, he goes so far, if you notice it, that he says at the end of verse 6, let that day just be taken off the calendar altogether. We should now in our language have 364 days and just take that one off because why did that day come about? Because it is a horrible day. In fact, how he speaks of it in, in verse 3 and in verse 4, when you typically have a uh, announcement of conception and then announcement of pregnancy where a child is born, those two days are days of joy. Hey, everybody, we're pregnant. We're going to have a child. Everybody rejoices. And then the child is born, you know, let her say, now we've had a boy or we've had a girl. Great rejoicing and joy. He says, that shouldn't have happened for my day. My day was so bad. There should have been grief on that day when it was announced that my mother was pregnant and when I was born. It is a deep, deep darkness. And that is what he is expressing here is really this crushing weight of hopelessness, how dark it is. There is no joy. And I know that we would be very sympathetic to that feeling because intense trials feel like that. There is no joy. It is darkness. It is heavy. It is hopeless. It is weighty. And that's what he's saying here. And that's all he's just beginning by doing is just expressing his pain. He's just saying, this is awful. This has been terrible. What a a, a terrible thing and painful thing that I have gone through. And the severity of it is such that he now is crying from his heart and saying, There is no happiness and there is no joy. Uh, There appears to be no light. There appears to be no hope. Uh, Everything about his his life just feels like his, his birthday was basically a disaster because it should have never happened because look at where he is and look at what has occurred to him and the significance of the amount of the loss that he is experiencing. 
And so you just have him in anguish as he begins this. And, and so I don't think we should read this as anger is his emotion, but it is just seeping with pain. It is just seeping with grief and anguish as he just speaks of the darkness and speaks of the clouds and, and how there is no joy to come from it. Let the stars be in darkness. There's no hope for light. All of this poetic language of saying in our language, it would be there's not a light at the end of the tunnel and all that my life is, is doom and gloom and darkness and woe that I ever came into existence because this is how bad it is. And so you can appreciate what he's saying because he's coming from this great anguish and pain. And you'll notice he pushes that further now as what we would call a lament here in verses 11 to 19. Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with the princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as hidden, hidden as a stillborn child? Or as infants who never see light, there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster, the small and the greater there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not and dig for it more than the hidden treasures? who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sign comes comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes." Powerful words, what he says here. And what you are hearing him say in this language is that it appears that the only way to experience any kind of rest, to have any kind of peace, any kind of relief is simply going to be death. There's not going to be anything to alleviate his pain. He is surrounded in darkness. There is no hope. It is the weightiness of the trial and the loss and the distress that is upon him. And what you see him speaking about from verses 11 to 19 in particular is how much better it would be not to be alive. Now, it's important to be careful and how what he's saying here. Because what he's not doing is, you know, giving some suicidal tirade. If you carefully look at that, he's describing it would be better off to be at rest. All that I want is relief. I just want some rest. And the only way that I see that it's going to possibly happen is through death. That's the only time I'm going to finally be at peace and and finally be at rest. And that's why he describes, like in verse 14, the kings and the counselors, verse 15, the princes, uh, verse 16, the stillborn child, verse 17, the wicked. He's not saying, I want to be like, be like them, but he's recognizing there is one thing in common to all of these groups, whether you're poor or you're rich or a child or you're old, whatever you are, is rest and peace comes at death. 
And he says, I'm just wanting to be able to have some rest. I just want some peace. And I want us to recognize that's not an uncommon thing in the scriptures either. Even Isaiah will say that when we studied Isaiah chapter 57, he talks about the only peace that the righteous will receive is in death. And that is often true for the righteous. Sometimes the righteous are persecuted and suffer and go through intense pain. And here's Isaiah even talking about that and saying, sometimes the rest will finally come when you're finally done in life. And Job feels that way. Job feels the intensity of the loss and the weight of the suffering and all that he is experiencing. And all that he can say is the only time I think I'm going to be able to experience any rest whatsoever is when I finally die. That's going to be finally my relief. In fact, you see that even at the very end of the chapter. I am not at ease. I am not quiet. I have no rest. You were just hearing the pain in the words of Job. Now, what is really interesting about what Job does here, as well as throughout the book, but I think it's worth pointing out right here particularly, that what Job is not doing in this chapter is saying, how I can't believe I've lost so much. You know, he doesn't go through a list and say in this opening uh, uh, poetry here to the three friends, Well, let me tell you all the things that just happened to me. You know, uh, woe is me because I've lost all of my riches. And woe is me because I've lost all my animals. And woe is me because I've lost all of the money. And woe is me because my children are dead. And woe is me and and go through all. Notice that's not what he does. And it's important to get a sense of where Job is coming from that he would speak like this. That the reason he needs to talk like this and why the darkness feels so weighty and heavy to him is that he believes that he has lost his relationship with God. And we're going to notice just a moment him completely express that in his very words. But we should have a sense of that based upon what we will read about from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 33 and 34. The whole argument that these four men are having centers around the idea that the righteous are blessed and the wicked are cursed. And so if I am experiencing all of this suffering and all of this pain and all of this loss and all of this darkness, that must mean that God's not with me. And the friend's conclusion is, that's right, God's not with you because you're a terrible sinner. And Job's response is, well, it's not because I'm a terrible sinner. I don't know why he's gone and I don't know why this has happened. I'll show it to you over when you get out to chapter 29, verse 1. Listen to the discourse that Job makes there. Job says there in chapter 29, verse 1, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, When the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me, when my steps were washed with butter, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Notice the connection that he's making. 
is I, he's not saying, well, I just wish for all the good times and the blessings again. He's recognizing that God was with him and my friendship was with God and his light shined upon me. And I could know that he was with me because I could see that I had all of my children and I had all these things going well. And so by suffering this kind of loss, he doesn't think that God is with him any longer. And that's the excruciating part of where Job is coming from. And that's why you're not going to see him say, you know, I can't believe about my kids and the wealth and the land and the animals. And he doesn't go through all that because that's not what's at stake to him. At stake to him is righteousness. The very thing that Satan said was, well, all he cares about is wealth. All he cares about is health. All he cares about those things. You won't see Job talk about that. That's not what's at stake to him. What's at stake to him is he thinks he's now out of favor with God. He seems to be out of relationship with him. And so his grand conundrum is how can this be when he's been righteous? This is what you're seeing him go round and round and round about with these friends. I am righteous. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know why this has happened to me. This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't add up. And so he's trying to come up with an answer of how God is running the universe and is still just. And yet this has happened to him. And so it's very important to have that lens upon where Job is coming from as you hear these words, as he's looking at all these things, is that he will speak a number of times throughout the book where he will talk about this separation that he feels from God because of what he suffered. And I think that's such an important point to to get at as you look at what Job is saying. It's not just simply, woe is me. But he is looking at what this means in terms of his relationship with God. You'll notice as we read that, did you notice all of the why questions that were in there? Verse 11, verse 12, verse 16, verse 20, verse 23. All of these open with why, 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 why? And I think this is important to observe because this isn't in the Hebrew just, you know, a a questioning of of God because I want to know the answer to everything. God, tell me why this is happening. That's not the idea of it, but it's part of the complaint. It's the expression of grief. And, And we understand that if you've been in suffering and you've been in serious trial, you will ask all kinds of why questions, not because you're wanting somebody to necessarily come up to you and give you the answer. You're just like, Wow, why? <laughs> this is just unbelievable what is going on. Why is are things like this? And it's not a criticism of God. And it's not even that he's asking his friends to give him an answer, though they're certainly going to try to chime in with all kinds of answers, but that's not where he's coming from. It's just simply a way that you express the depth of the loss. Uh, I, I relate to that. We first got that diagnosis with grace and we were driving all the way back to Miami. That's just all kinds of why. And it wasn't a why of why God did you do this? And it wasn't a why like, you know, some give somebody give me a, a, a medical answer for these things. It's just how you talk about the emptiness of your life and you just go, why? What happened? What is going on? And there's not an answer to that. And that's what he, he's, he's doing here in, in all of these whys that, that he keeps bringing forward is, is just a way to express 
ultimately not just this external shattering of his life because his health is gone and his children are dead and he's lost so much, but what you are seeing is this internal restlessness. That's ultimately what's being described in in this chapter. And, And this truly puts teeth on the concept of what a trial does is that it's not even all of the external pain, which is certainly immense for this poor man Job. But you will notice what he is getting at is the internal turmoil that he can't get through. Over and over again, he just simply wants there to be rest and no more troubling. It's not even how he talks about make the pain stop. He just doesn't want any of this internal difficulty anymore that's just churning within him. You can just imagine all that he is experiencing. He is even speaking about the sleepless nights. He's just weighing upon him. And so what he's observing is that I just want rest. And the only way that I see rest will ever happen is through death. And so one of his expressions is going to be, God, then why don't you just let me have rest? I just want to be at ease. I just want peace. I just want rest. So God, would you help me out here and just let me rest? That's the expression of the pain that he is coming from and he is describing. And that's where these final verses that we just read in verses 20 to 26, I didn't know a better way to describe it except it's just the darkness of the soul that you you see in what he is saying here that there are days that essentially are just too dark for the sufferer to be able to see any light at all. I mean, he just... There's no light. There's no hope. There's no help. All of these experiences are just too extreme for this hurting man to have any hope that the valley is too deep for him to find relief at all. He's in the depths of of darkness and pain and grief. And, And I think it's interesting. There's a little bit of an irony that happens there in verse 20, 23. Notice what what Job says there. Why is light given to to the man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Now, I'm not sure if you catch the irony of that. Because the irony is, if you remember when Satan and God talk in the beginning, Satan tells God the only reason that people like Job are righteous is because you've put a hedge around them. You've hedged them in from all the suffering and pain and problems. But if you take down that hedge and no longer bless, then he's going to curse you to your face. We saw in chapter one, that's not what Job did. But notice now Job's perspective. Job is saying, God has hedged me in. Not to blessings and good times, but he has hedged me into misery and grief and suffering. He's looking at it from the other perspective and says, there's no relief, there's no help, there's no hope. And God has put me in this box by which I can't get out of my suffering and I can't get out of my misery. I'm just boxed in by God and there is no hope of escape whatsoever. And so that's the irony that that is pictured there. His misery is so great that you see like in verse 24, he cannot even eat. His groanings are just simply the pouring out of water. All he can do is sigh. 
You know in the experience of extreme trial and suffering, you don't eat. Uh, You don't eat. Uh, It's the best weight loss plan there is, unfortunately. But if you've ever been with anybody in a severe trial, you'll just watch the weight fall off of them. Just they can't eat. It's just the suffering's too intense. And Job is sitting there going, no, my food is sighing. I just groan. That's all I can do. There's nothing else I can do. I just sit here and I groan. And that's what makes verse 26 so, so striking. I am, I have no ease. I have no quiet. I have no rest. It just speaks to the internal turmoil. Just the pain as brewing within him. There is no rest. There is no ease. There is no break. There is no hope. There's no help. The only thing that he sees coming is more trouble. And that's even ironic because what's going to happen is the three friends are going to start talking and start giving him trouble. All that he has that lies before him is trouble. And that's his his poem. What are the messages for us in that? Why is this here? What can we gain from what Job is experiencing? There's at least two things that I want to share with you tonight as a lesson for you. Number one, I think it's important to just observe that faith is not two-dimensional. Faith's not two-dimensional. What I mean by that is how easy it is to come to the book of Job Read the first two chapters where we go, okay, Job suffered and he trusted God. Great book. Let's close it up and walk away. As if that's all there is to it, you know. When suffering comes, just trust God. There you go. Yeah, that's great. That all sounds good in theory. But try it on. Really try it on and be in the depths of suffering and pain and try, try that on. And that's why we need the book of Job, because the simplicity of saying when suffering, trust God is too simple. There is despair and suffering. There is darkness and trials. And I think one of the important things to observe here with Job, who is described as somebody who had endurance, that the book of James says, look back at, at Job and He has this great faith, and we're going to see here this expression that in his despair, in his pain, in his difficulty, in his trial, is that you can have faith and despair at the same time. You can have full faith in God and still experience the darkness of the soul and intense suffering and the questioning and the lack of understanding and the lack of hope and the despair. I think it is a shame that too often Christianity is painted as you have to be happy and it's sunshine and rainbows and joy and it's always good. And so when you come through the doors, you should always have a smile on your face and pretend that everything is wonderful and great. And as if if you are in pain or you have a lack of hope or that you are in darkness, that there must be something wrong with you. Why don't you have more faith? Listen to what Job just said. He's going to be praised by James. He's praised by God at the end of the book too. 
Right? You spoke rightly about me. Friends, trials hurt. And to pretend otherwise is just nonsense. That's just crazy to think that we would just pretend. We'll just put up our facade. We'll just put up our shield. Everything is fine. We're all good. Stoicism is not the godly response. Pretending that you are impervious to pain is not a godly response. That's not the response that God is calling for us to have. And we should see that in the scriptures so many times how faith and and uh, despair are not incompatible. Remember Elijah? I mean, Elijah's like, I'm the last righteous man around here. Chapter 19 opens with Jezebel saying, with the sending a message to Elijah saying, by tomorrow you're as good as dead. And you know what Elijah does? Elijah goes a day's journey out into the desert, sits under a broom tree, and it says there, quote, he asked that he might die. Just like Job. It appears to be the only relief. And remember, and listen to the words, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. You know, Elijah's upheld as quite a man of faith. He is upheld as one of the great ones. He is the defining prophet of the Old Testament. It is Moses and Elijah. And here's Elijah saying this. How about Moses? I love with Moses and God. Oh. Listen to Moses in Numbers 11 and verse 10. Moses heard the people weeping through their clans, everyone at the door of their tent. The anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give them? Their fathers, where am I to get meat to give to these people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. There's Moses. God, if it's going to go like this, put me out of my misery. Moses is a man of great faith. And yet he's in a moment of great despair right here. How about the Apostle Paul? In a few weeks we're going to get to start studying 2 Corinthians in our Sunday morning study. Listen to Paul. He writes to those Corinthians, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia... For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You thought about what he just said right there? We were so burdened beyond our strength. We couldn't take it. We couldn't take it anymore. It was beyond our strength. We despaired of life itself. We thought that we were done. It was over. What do you have David say? A psalm that we love so much. 
walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Where did we get the idea that faith and despair are incompatible? That you can have full faith in God and yet still feel like you are being destroyed on the inside. That trials hurt. That the pain is real. And that there is nothing wrong with that kind of expression. Which to me gives us the second point that is important for us to take away from Job. Is that we serve a God who allows such kind of unfiltered questions and laments. God's strong enough to handle us expressing our feelings. Is that not why we love reading the Psalms when suffering? Why do we gravitate to those Psalms when life gets hard? Because you're reading about human beings like you and me saying things that we think are just too afraid to say. And here they are just pouring out their heart and soul saying, Lord, let's get what's going on. Oh, the agony. I want us to see in Job, in Moses, in Elijah, in the Apostle Paul, in David, in all of the Psalms, that God is able to handle those kinds of discussions. I would strongly argue as a parent, would you not want your child to come to you in the darkness of their soul and express exactly how they're feeling? And how God constantly opens the door to us of prayer and says, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. And Job is expressing his heart and expressing his feelings. And Moses expresses his heart and his feelings. And David expresses his heart and his feelings. Elijah expresses his heart and his feelings. The Apostle Paul, I mean... Do we not read of the Apostle Paul? And I read him, and he is Superman, right? I mean, he he jumps persecution in a single bound, and I mean, he just is amazing, right? I mean, he just he gets left stone left for dead, and gets up and goes and keeps on preaching. He he is serious spiritual Superman. And he says that we were pressed beyond our strength and despaired of life itself. So faith and despair are not incompatible and God is there to be able to listen to our pain and to listen to our grief and listen to our suffering. I'd like you to listen to how the writer of Hebrews put that as we end. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Since then, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Now listen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now here we have this high priest. We have somebody who stands as our mediator, our go-between. He says, you have a great high priest, and I want you to know something about him. He's not unable to sympathize with where you're at. He's not unable to sympathize with those weaknesses. Friends, that's why he came in the flesh, to be able to be that faithful high priest. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what are we supposed to do with that? You have a great high priest who can sympathize with your weakness. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you are in need, draw close to the throne of God and find mercy and grace to help. He doesn't say, now you have a faithful high priest, so you know what? Buck up, put a smile on your face and carry on like there's nothing happening in your life. He says, you're in your time of need. You're in your weakness. Approach the throne of God and find mercy and find grace to help. That's why Jesus did the way that he did. This is why he lives the life that he lives. He doesn't just simply appear in in the incarnation at 31 years old, one day later dies and goes back to heaven and says, see, I died for you. Why the three decades of life? You know, God can just show up and go, hi, I'm in the flesh, kill me tomorrow. Boom, back, back I go. I died for you. Why all that time? So that we have a high priest who understands our pain and understands our suffering and understands our weakness so that we can take our cries and our pleads and our distress and our hurt and take it to God and he'll provide help through his grace and mercy. That's why we sing great songs like, where could I go but to the Lord? That's why we sing songs like Dave led earlier about the suffering be still my soul i mean that you read those lines again that whole song is talking about getting through the tough 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 times of life and here is this song telling your own soul stay the course stay with god and that's what job does but feel free to express the pain and express the hurt. We'll sing a song and we invite you to come to an amazing God who does not ask you to pretend that life is good, but asks you to have faith in Him that He will carry you through. Through the trials, through the darkness, through the weightiness, through the lack of hope, God says, I'll be with you. I'll carry you through. Just trust me, and I'll bring you through to the end. You give your life to Jesus tonight. Follow him with all of your heart. Turn away from your sins. Obey him. Won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?